This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Now, Matthew chapter 8 is where we were last week, and we're kind of in this zone between major teachings, but my hope is that last week, as we, as we dug into some of the, I guess, the less concentrated parts of the gospel where the words of Christ are found, that there are, we discovered that there are very profound teachings to be had, even in these, I guess, less dense areas. That's one way to describe it. You know, remember we last week we discussed the capability that God has of being surprised. If you'll remember that, we talked about how Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. He marveled at the centurion's faith. And that's that one thing you wouldn't think that there's a lot to be extracted or to be derived from that. But that really is true. That opens up that opens up our understanding in other areas of the word or it opens up our understanding about the nature of God. It kind of, it shows us if we've got eyes to see, if our hearts are open to it, if we're not just skimming the surface of the words to try to meet our daily reading quota, if we have such a thing, and, and I'm not saying that it's bad, it's good to have a daily reading quota if you have one, I'm certainly not knocking that, I would that more people did. But as you read below the surface level and meditate on these things and think about these things, they can really reveal a lot. Jesus is capable of being surprised. That means that I'm capable of surprising him. If I'm capable of surprising him, that must mean that he does not know every single decision that I'm going to make in advance. And that means that if I'm ever struggling with something, if I'm ever caught up in the midst of something that I should not be in and that God wants me out of, that it's not a foregone conclusion that I am doomed to remain in it until the end of my days. There is hope because the unspoken implication when, when you're a believer that believes in predestinationism and believes that that uh, human free will, human free will isn't really a thing. It's all predetermined from before the foundation of the world, everything that everyone's going to do, who's going to go to heaven, who's going to go to hell. That's a hopeless state to be in. There really is because. Well, okay, great for you if you're one of those predestined to go to heaven, but then that removes all responsibility from you to live an upright life and to, and to submit yourself to the will of God because your thinking then leans towards, oh, well, I'm ordained to go to heaven anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. Uh-uh. Cast that kind of thinking out of your mind, man, because that will lead you down a path that you don't want to go. That will lead you into places that you don't want to be in and God does not want you to be. And likewise, if you're one of those tortured souls, and I mean tortured souls, that has this notion that, oh, well, I'm just predestined to go to hell. Well, man, what hope do you have? What hope even is there? Why even bother living? Why even bother doing anything? Your whole life then becomes completely bereft of any kind of meaning. And then you feel justified, completely justified in living a wicked life. Because why try? Why be a decent person? Why be good? 
why any of those things. And again, I'm not trying to not trying to to mix this up with a notion that living a good life saves us. We all know better. Living a good life doesn't save anybody. It just makes uh, just makes a person a moral sinner. And they still die and go to hell because what Jesus said, what actually makes a person lost. It isn't all the bad things that they do. It's because their nature is unchanged because they have not believed upon our Lord Jesus Christ. People do bad because they are bad. It's, it's, it's getting the order of these things right. It's very important to keep in our understanding. People aren't bad because they do bad. It's they do bad because they are bad. And the only the only thing and the only one that can save us from that condition, the human fallen human condition, is Jesus, our Savior. And he saves us now. He doesn't wait until we're dead. It's not like, oh, well, I'll be saved when I die because then I'll finally be free of the, the body of sin and death and all of that. No. He saves us now. It is a conversion of the heart and mind now. And the flesh is crucified in the spiritual sense. We put it to death now. And so it, that's, that's why responsibility keeps coming up lately. It's been coming up a lot in our messages and in our teachings. We're personal responsibility. And a lot of people don't want the responsibility. They want all the benefits of Christianity, but they don't want any of the responsibility that then rests upon their shoulders as a result of Christianity in their life. You know what we're saying? I've been saying it a lot. Okay. So all of that comes from this one revelation that God is capable of being surprised. So take heart. There's hope. If you've fallen by the wayside. It's not a foregone conclusion that you'll stay there. It's ultimately up to you by the mercy of God. And the mercy of God is there. It is there to be had. It is there to be used, not as a justification and as a license to continue living an ungodly life or doing ungodly things, but it is there to be used as a ladder to climb up out of the pit into which you have either fallen or willingly jumped. And usually it's willingly jumped. Usually it's that. So we got all of that right there about the end of chapter 8, where he says, right, Jesus turned to the people that were following. He turned to his disciples and he said, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast in, out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, well, what's this outer darkness he's talking about? Well, that really is metaphorical of eternal judgment. Now, we understand a few things about eternal judgment. There's this place called hell, and I don't like talking about it a lot. And there's a place that's even worse called the lake of fire. Both of them are horrible. We don't want to be in either one. But the believer doesn't really have to worry about them because we've been delivered from that. We keep our eyes on God. We stay faithful to the cross and faithful to our God, faithful to our Lord and Savior. We don't have to have any fear of hell or death or of, uh, of judgment or of this uh, description of outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So was well, that literal or metaphorical? Well, it's literal, but let me ask you this question. Judgment is literal, but let me ask you this question. What difference does it make? It's a horrible place to go, no matter what it actually manifests as. Okay, now hell is real. Yes, it's not symbolic. 
You can derive some symbolic meaning from it. Okay, sure. All right. Uh, granted that. But it is a very real place. And our Lord spoke of it more than once. And He did not speak of it in the context of a parable. What, would, what were we talking about just the other night? He said there was a certain rich man. When He talked about the rich man and Lazarus. And they both died. And the, not, not the same Lazarus that, that Jesus rose uh, from the dead. This was a different Lazarus. That, but when they both died and the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell. He didn't say, hear now the parable of a certain rich man. He said there was one. This was the guy. This is what happened to him. And this guy Lazarus sat outside his gate and so on. We've read all of that. That's not tonight's teaching. That's coming, but it's not tonight's teaching. So he speaks of judgment. And he speaks of how those that are outside of Judaism, those that are outside of uh, the children of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, the natural descendants of Abraham, they that believe on the Lord, they're going to be the ones that are actually going to sit down in the kingdom with our Lord. We're going to be of those people. He's talking about us here in chapter 8, verse 11. Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, east and west of where? East and west of where they were. From the east. Those lands east of Israel. All the way through China and Japan. You know, there's Christians all over the world. From the west, all of Europe, Africa, the Americas, and so on. So let's move on. Well, he grants the centurion his petition. He says in verse 13, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Okay, great. That's awesome. That's an answer of prayer. That's an answer of faith. Chapter 9. No, we're still in chapter 8. Excuse me. Verse 14, he goes on. And when Jesus was come unto Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of the fever. And he touched her, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. And when even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed of devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment and departed unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever, whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now here's another one of those seemingly very clear-cut, surface-level statements made by the Master. Almost in passing, you could, fit it, you could fit it on a fortune and stick it in a fortune cookie. You could open that up. I mean, you could picture this being on a fortune cookie. Hmm, foxes have holes, and birds have nests. You know, but cracked bowl hold no rice. <laughs> but there's a lesson in this. There's a lesson in this. What's that? Grasshopper, yes. Grasshopper. But there's a lesson in this statement. It's a warning, really. And we can take it as a warning to all who would dare to follow Jesus. Now, here, here was a person that came to him. One of the scribes. This was one of the religious leaders of the Jews. A scribe came to him. This was a person of reputation, of some, some measure of respect, possibly even renown, coming to Jesus and is so taken with Jesus and taken with Jesus' teachings 
that he's he's making a pledge of allegiance to him. He really is in this simple statement. He's saying, Master, I will follow you anywhere you go. He's calling him Master. And I don't think it was flattery. It might have been, but we've no reason to assume that it was. He's saying, Master, I'll follow you wherever you go. Again, that comes back to our lesson last week on appetite. And there's an appetite for the Word of God. People will make a way. Bible studies are very good to be at. And that's reasons why we have them. There's no offering taken up during the Bible study. This is all overhead expense for the blessing and edification and benefit of the people that come. So there is that. Let's move on. Jesus answered him. He answered this pledge of allegiance and he said, The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. What was he telling this man? If you're going to follow me, it can very well cost you something. And it's a warning to any who would dare to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a warning to us all, not a warning to warn us away. But it's a, like a surgeon general's warning, okay? He's slapped on, onto, uh, onto this uh, being a student and a disciple of our Lord. There's the warning. By all means, follow me wherever I go, but be advised, there's a price. There's a price. It may cost you something, but the unspoken lesson that you can tack right onto that is don't be afraid of the price. Don't be afraid of the price that it's going to cost you. Don't be afraid of that. Don't let, you, don't let that discourage you or warn you off from being a disciple of our Lord. Because what you're going to get for that price doesn't matter what the price is. It doesn't even matter what the price is. Well, what if, what if the price was $5,000? I'm writing a check for $5,000 and then I'm going to scramble to make sure I got the money to cover it. What did he say in another place about, about the person who finds a pearl of great price? Buried in some field, you know, some treasure in some, some land. What does he do? He says that a wise man goes and sells everything he has to raise the money to go buy that field so that he can possess what he knows is in that field. So, you know, what's a good Wyoming example of that would be oil. Well, let's say that you got a hot tip, you got a lead that there was oil in some field somewhere for sale up north of town or someplace like that. And uh, and it was credible enough. I'm not talking about some, you know, some wild speculation. I mean, this was a certain thing. You knew that this this field had oil. Well, what, what would you do with that knowledge? Would you sit on it? No, I could do nothing. Or would you maybe see if there was some possible way you could get the ownership of that field? You could buy it. Why? Because, you know, you'd make your money back and nothing flat. You'd dig, you'd strike, you'd start pumping that thing, and you'd, you'd learn whatever you had to learn about it in order to make it work, because that's, that's a living, that's a, that's a potential fortune, that's wealth that'll support you throughout your life into your old age, and then keep it in the family, it'll support your kids. It's the same thing, okay? All right, so there's the warning there. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't have a permanent place to call his home. So if you follow me, it might cost you something very, very dear. Reverend DeRyder, can I get an amen? Because <laughs> where are we? <laughs> you know, the, the Lord called us into the ministry. And then by extension, our wives, because they married us. Okay, well, so much for living close to home and mom and dad and all of that, right? 
So much for that. Well, it kind of worked out for our wives the way that we ended up, the way that they ended up. <laughs> they ended up just right there, practically in the backyard. But, you know, my family's in Tulsa. Yours is up in Cheeseland. And, uh, and that's kind of how, how it is. So, you know, dreams of staying with an extended family and being close by them all, all the time. Well, that's not really in the cards for you and I, is it? Now, it can be for most people, but not for, not for some of us. Now, we can either bewail that or say, well, I forget the ministry, then I don't want anything to do with this because I want to live where I want to live. Or maybe I could just be in the ministry there, but we don't go where we want to. The Lord our God, the general, he writes the, he writes the marching orders, and so it is to us to obey. But now, are we afraid of the price? I would say certainly not, or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. And so the same warning goes to believers as well, not necessarily in the ministry. Don't be afraid of the price. Don't be afraid of the cost because it's worth it. It is worth it, man. It is worth it immediately in the changes that God brings about in your life and in the things that he brings into your life and then in the work that he begins to do in you and the things that he begins to show you and in the good person that he begins to make you into. I recently heard a lecture on the necessity of virtue. It was a really good lecture. Who are the most virtuous people on the wor in the world? Well, they ought to be Christians. They ought to be Christians. The born-again believer, the Christian, should be the pinnacle example of all human virtues. And again, not because they make us Christians but because we are the children of God, we are the ones that should be admired, okay? For patience, for self-control, that's temperance. The Bible says temperance, that's self-control. For patience, for self-control, for gracious speaking, as opposed to coarse, um, angry, profane communications. We're the ones that should be admired for being the example of all human virtues, of faithfulness in, in family and in marriage and things like that, and wisdom with money and, 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 and things like that. Just about any virtue in the book, it should be that Christians should be the ones that people look at and say, you know what, they've really got their life put together. They got their house in order. And you know when you have your house in order, that kind of buys you the rights, that earns you the rights to criticize the world because you've got your own house in order. It's kind of hard to criticize the world when your house is not in order. And by, what I mean by your house in order is your entire life more or less squared away. To a greater or lesser extent, you're on the right path, you've got things under control. That should be, it should be the Christian. And I know a lot of times that it's not, and that's for various reasons. Sometimes a person's new to the faith and they're still, they're still getting their feet up underneath them, so to speak, and learning how to be a believer. And that's all part of the process. So, you know, we'll, we'll attach to this teaching the reminder, be patient with yourself. Don't make excuses, but be patient with yourself. Get yourself on the right track by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. Let the Spirit of God have His way in your life. And he'll bring about all kinds of amazing things. So that's what you get for the price you're willing to pay. The price being laying down our lives. The price being, as Paul said over in, I think, chapter 12, chapter 11 or chapter 12 of Romans, you know, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 
you know, well, what do we get from that? Well, we get every good thing that comes from being children of the Most High God. And that's quite a lot. Now, the, uh, the immature mind, or let's say the less mature mind, the less mature mind automatically associates that with um, stuff and things, being blessed in the material sense. But remember what Jesus taught us earlier in these red letter studies. Don't even think about that. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all that of the junk that will be added to you. That's going to come as a natural course. But seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And then a lot of the things that will be added unto you that come with you are these virtues that we were talking about. And I know we're not in Second Peter where we really dig into the, to the human virtues. But, but that ties all into it. It's all interconnected. It's all interlinked. So... That's the price. If we follow the master, there's going to be a price. But so what? Let's pay it. Let's pay it. Because what we get is totally awesome. And it'll make your life better. And it'll make your family better. And it'll make your relationships better. And it'll make many, many things better. Let's move on. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Ooh, ow, man, when you just, again, when you're just doing the surface, the surface reading, that, 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 uh, what's the word? That smarts, that, that's almost a slap. Yeah, let the dead bury their dead. But I don't think that was Jesus' attitude. I don't think it, with that tone of voice, I mean, I don't think that that was his attitude. This is not Jesus being heartless. He didn't really have a problem with the man going and having a funeral, okay? But and this is where this is where the different parts to biblical study comes in, and you have to take a deeper look, okay? It was common not only in Jesus's day; it's been common throughout human history. It's just been within the last sixty to a hundred years or so that it's become more common for. Birds to not only leave the nest, but to fly far, far away. You see where we're going? Used to be in most societies throughout human history that, you know, you'd start a family, raise your family, your children are grown, and then, you know, they move in next door. Or they still live under the same roof. Or they live at least within town or within a few blocks. And, you know, you'd have four generations all in the same county. And so people, they, 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 didn't leave, they didn't stray far from the tree, you know, or the, nut, the acorn didn't fall, don't, didn't fall far from the tree. People didn't really scatter far and wide. St families stayed close. And so what was, this, what was this man asking? This was a disciple of our Lord. What was he asking? He wasn't asking, hey, my dad's dead. Can I please have permission to go have a funeral for him and I'll be right back? It wasn't like that. It wasn't bereavement leave. What he was asking to do was, let me continue to stay at home with my family until my father grows old and passes away. And then when he is dead and gone, and I have no more obligation to him, then I will come and continue to follow him. And so what was Jesus saying? That's going to take years, you know, unless an accident befalls him. You know, or, or months or years. We don't know how old, how, we don't know how close to death this, this disciple's father was. But what was he telling him? Let the dead go bury their dead. Let the dead go bury their dead. Was he being cold? Was he being, was he being hard hearted? Was he being ruthless? No. No, 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 no. One lesson from this is don't miss your divine opportunity for the sake of what is comfortable and familiar.
This was Jesus, the Messiah. Hundreds of years in the anticipation of coming to his people Israel. This was Jesus, whom the Jews had been looking forward to his arrival for centuries. They knew Messiah is coming. He's going to restore the kingdom or something. Their understanding was skewed by the time that he arrived. But man, this was Jesus. And Jesus was only going to have about a three-year ministry before he would, betray, he would be betrayed and taken and crucified and then risen again and so forth. Don't miss your divine opportunity for the sake of what is familiar or for what is comfortable. And lots of people do that. Sometimes the call of God even comes upon their life to, to enter into the ministry. And that, that is no small thing. And I'm not lifting up my own station here. I'm just speaking very objectively and just very straightforward on this. That is no small thing. And it's no easy thing. And it requires sacrifice and diligence. And it is not for the weak. But if you skip it, if you skip it to chase down a dream of a white picket fence, if you skip your divine opportunity, whatever that might be, Man, it might not come around again, or it might be years before it does. And you might think, oh, well, that'll buy me some time. Man, no, don't think like that, because you may really miss something tremendous. And I'm not just talking about the ministry. I'm talking about every single believer now. All right. No idea the opportunities that God will bring by your way. You know, and there are those that even put off serving God. They put off even living for God and getting right with God because they want to sow their wild oats. They want to make their fortune. They want to go do this or that or the other. They want to have some fun first. You don't even know what fun is. And life isn't about fun. It really isn't. Now, this is going to rub. This might rub some flesh the wrong way. OK, but let's let's be disciples of our Lord and be willing to hear that which is uncomfortable. OK. Life is not about having fun. All right, now Solomon said in a very concise fashion, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That, sound, that might sound kind of humdrum and like no fun. What, fear God and keep his commandments? That just sounds like all obligation all the time. But, but, but you know, don't let that make you cynical about it, okay? Life isn't about having fun. Because fun, fun is great, all right? But it's also very shallow. It only lasts so long. And then once it's over with, then it leaves you living in the past. You know, you know a, lot of, a lot of times you don't just take happy memories with you, but you're always looking back, wishing you could go back to it. All right. And you can never do that. Nobody can ever do that. You live now. You live today. And, and, and while I don't, I, don't, I don't promote a live for the moment type of attitude in life because that promotes all kinds of irresponsibility. All right. Jesus did say, take no thought for the morrow. He said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Don't worry about tomorrow, okay? Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. That's what Jesus said. So what's the lesson here? Don't miss a divine opportunity. That's right. We talked about fun. Life isn't about fun. Fun's going to be there. Fun will be there. Sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes none, sometimes a lot, okay? Well, well then what's life for if not for fun? Well, Solomon said, fear God and keep his commandments. But there's more to it than that. I like what the minor prophet said. I think it was Hosea who said, He hath shown thee, O man, what is good for thee. And 
what is it? Now I've got to paraphrase it a little bit, okay? But only a little bit because I don't remember the precise phrasing. But I remember what's important. He says, He hath shown thee, O man, what is good for thee. And what is it but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Oh, I like that. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Do justly, all right? So that lays an obligation on us to do something, right? And to do something right. To do right. To do justly. And to love mercy. You need that too because perfect justice knows no mercy at all. Perfect justice is a hammer and a sword and an executioner's axe, okay? But loving mercy tempers that and reminds us and when you begin, when you either become a parent or if you've ever been a parent or whatever, you can really appreciate that. And if you've never been a parent, but you've been a child, you can still appreciate that because you've had the threat of judgment over your head when you did something wrong. So do justly and love mercy. Let that mercy temper your sense of judgment and then walk humbly with your God. Oh, man, you, that might be the message Sunday morning. Who knows what's coming? What's life all about? What's life all about? Well, I mean, we, we could spout something vague and feel good, like, well, you know, life shouldn't, life's not about fun. Life's about being meaningful. All right, well, all right, well, what greater meaning can you have? What more meaningful life can a person have than a life dedicated to God? And by extension, right, through that dedication, benefiting all mankind around you. This isn't just a church. You see where we're going with this. A church isn't just a church. It is an absolute blazing lighthouse. Blazing its light out into the darkness round about them all the time, all day, every day. That's the mission. And so back to Jesus' first lesson back there in, in Matthew 5, the beginning of our, in the beginning of our red letter studies. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We could put a great big lamp up in there in that steeple like that Baptist church down in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida did. An enormous Baptist church down there. I think they boasted multiple tens of thousands of members. And obviously they didn't all show up at the same time. Parking was an absolute staggering nightmare for that facility. But it was this epically huge Baptist mega church down there. And they... Uh, they built a lighthouse on the church with this huge blazing light that spun around like a lighthouse does, you know, slow going around in a circle. And it actually caused a lot of problems because it was shining into everybody's windows at night and they're trying to sleep. And it was in the news. That's how I remember. That's how I remember it. That was back in 98, 1999, something like that. But, you know, we could put a light up in the steeple of this church and do the same thing. But what's that? That's just a symbol. That's just a metaphor. Where's the real light? What, where's the light that penetrates the darkness of people's lives? Well, it's coming from God, yes. But who are supposed to be the lenses? And we can't be the light of the world if our life is filled with darkness. That keeps coming up again and again and again. I'm going to beat that drum till I break it. I will. We've got to be. If, we're, if we are called the light of the world, then let's be full of light. Let's be full of virtue. Not for our glory. And see, that's the thing. That's the thing. All right? 
virtuous people get accused of being so self-righteous and of being goody two-shoes and being all this all these silly schoolyard denigrating statements that are that are thrown at people who are better people than other people or at least who uh, who live a better life okay because sin is sin and a virtuous sinner is still a sinner all right we're called to be something other than that we're called to be greater jesus said except our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and pharisees we won't see the kingdom of heaven we won't see the kingdom of god so, all right, so we'll be accused. Well, so what? Then that gives us the opportunity to demonstrate the virtue of patience and of long-suffering. It's an opportunity. It really is. So, what's the lesson? The lesson is, don't miss your divine opportunity. If God opens a, God opens a door for you to do something good for Him, to be something good, and usually it's being something. We all want to do something, right? Because that brings some glory our way. That's a natural desire. It's not necessarily a good or a right desire. But a lot of times, God just wants us to be. Just wants us to be. And then once you are something, all right. Once once you've once you've uh, grasped to whatever extent, once you've grasped the righteousness of being righteous then you're in a much better place to start doing righteous. We were taught in seminary, weren't we? You have to be something before you can do something. And you have to have something before you can give something. You have to have God working in your life. You have to have God before you can share God, effectively anyway, or credibly. You know, And you've got to be something before you can do something. Or I want to do great things for God. Great. Take the time now to be something for God. And then God, in His timing, will use you. And He'll use you in ways you don't even realize is happening. And that's important because a lot of times when we become self-aware that we're being used of God, that instantly sterilizes what we're doing. It's, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a trap almost. You know, like uh, like C.S. Lewis discussed over in the Screw Tape Letters, he was talking about how you know when when a believer be becomes aware for the first time that they're humble, right? Then you know the devil is there, boom, in a second, going, "Hey, check that out! You're being humble." And then the thought comes into the believer's mind, "Wow, how about that? I'm being humble." And then the devil's there trying to provoke pride in your humility. You're like, "Wow, check that out! I'm so humble." Look at me. Wait a second, you see the contradiction there. And, you know, and a, a, most believers, I like to think most believers, their sense of proportion then gets awakened and they just laugh at the devil and go to bed. Because you see how silly that is. What's the point? Be usable. Focus on the being first. Being righteous. Being virtuous. And let me tell you something. There's a lot in that. There's a lot to be had in that and applied to your life, to things that you never even thought of before. Be virtuous, and then you can do virtuous. Now that doesn't become a, it's not to become a banner for never doing anything for God because I just want to focus on being all the time. All right? Well, you know, when God opens the door of opportunity for you to do something that is good, and there's many opportunities. Our lives are filled with opportunities to do right as well as to be right. Don't miss your opportunity for the sake of what is familiar or comfortable. We'll pick it up. We'll pick it up. Be at the will of God. We're going to pick it up in verse 28 next, next week. 
Pick it up in verse 28. Now, and there's only one, in verse 28 to the end of the chapter, there's only one red letter word in there. Jesus says, go, that's it. But there is a, there is a real teaching to be had in there. It's more academic than anything else, but it's, it's, good to, it's good to recognize. So we'll pick it up there. We won't spend the whole study on it. We'll move into chapter 9 because there's some good stuff in chapter 9. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.